This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Armadillos. Do you like both war and animals? Try Armadillos today. Well, if you didn't leave Facebook and Twitter last week, you might have heard that the Atlantic Ocean has lost 90% of its plankton, the government is about to impose lockdowns over climate change, and oh yeah, climate change also just doesn't exist. So let's get up to speed today on why all of those claims are actually dead wrong. Good Wednesday morning. I'm Ethan Brown, and this is Tip of the Iceberg, where I will break down some environmental news and then answer a question from our listeners on the air. Submit questions via Patreon, email, or social media. Patron questions go to the front of the line, so sign up at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Let's start with the weather. One claim I saw was that there's heat waves all the time. This summer is nothing out of the ordinary. Let's just enjoy the sunshine. And to quote the latest blockbuster Jordan Peele movie, nope. First off, as you probably are hearing, these are record heat waves. A record means that it has not happened before. For instance, remembering someone's name immediately after meeting them would be a record event. So if we're talking about the recent heat waves in Europe or China or parts of the United States, when you hear the word record, that's probably all you need to know. But let's zoom out for a second. June 2022 broke tons of records locally, but what about globally? Well, to find out which June is the hottest, it's time for the pageant of Junes. Welcome back to the 142nd annual Pageant of Junes. On the stage now is June 2022, who just crushed the catwalk and is now ready to begin the talent portion. June 2022, let's hear it. Alright, good job, June 2022! Good for you! Now on to the How Will You As A Pageant Contestant Single-Handedly Save The World portion. How Will You, June 2022, End Conflict In The Middle East? Oh, you don't talk? Because you're a calendar month? Wait, wait, wait everyone, it's writing something down. Okay, let's see. Ew, this is so cringe. Guilty. Um, okay. Well, is June 2022 the hottest? You've got all the information, judges. So out of all the other years, where do you rank June 2022? We'll start with NASA, who ranks it as... 
Number one. All right, moving to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they rank it number six. How about the Copernicus Climate Change Service? Number three. Okay, so given that June 2022 is up against every other June dating back to 1880, first, third, and sixth are all ridiculously high rankings. But why did the judges disagree? Well, we see these differences because different scientists use different models to calculate global average temperatures. The Earth isn't lined with thermometers, and calculations are especially difficult in the Arctic, where there are fewer research stations, and as such, much less data. But whoever's data you like best, June 2022 is really hot, and the only years it's comparable to are within the last decade. It's not like 1976 is on the list. I mean, I hear June 1976 wore an ugly mock turtleneck dressed for her pageant and didn't even get close. Get with the program, girl. In summary, it's clear that much like younger generations with access to YouTube makeup tutorials, the Earth is getting significantly hotter in recent years. And if you remember from other episodes of Tip of the Iceberg, the Earth is in a La Nina event right now. No, not a quinceañera. We made that joke last time. El Niño and La Niña are natural weather phenomena in the tropical Pacific Ocean that oscillate every few years. El Niño events lead to warmer global temperatures, and La Niña events lead to cooler global temperatures. So it's not just that June 2022 is ranked so highly... It's that it's ranked so highly during La Nina. Climate change is so profound that it's canceling out La Nina and then some. That's right, La Nina is canceled. So be prepared both for the extreme heat and for La Nina's forthcoming notes app apology. I hear it's really heartfelt, guys. But when we do oscillate back to an El Nino event, in all likelihood, many of the records set this summer are going to be demolished. We know that, so we can prepare for that. We can try to set up the infrastructure needed to prevent as many heat-related casualties as possible. I'm not trying to be doom and gloom by saying that. I say it to encourage us to think about solutions. But to the myth about this summer not being out of the ordinary, that's just not scientifically accurate. The other weather myth in this vein, which apparently is a pun according to our on-staff antiques consultant, so it gets a... But circulating around social media last week was the text from a Washington Post article from 1922. This article contained reports from fishermen, hunters, and explorers in the Arctic saying they saw a dramatic drop in the amount of ice, fewer seals, and fewer fish. There is text at the bottom saying, quote, Within a few years, it is predicted that due to the ice melt, the sea will rise and make most coastal cities uninhabitable. 
So that last line was fabricated. It was not in the original article. Obviously, in 1922, they didn't have that research. They thought rouged knees were sexy and hadn't even invented the chocolate chip cookie yet. But the rest of the article was true. Washpo did report on ice loss in the Arctic in 1922. And interesting as that may be, it really has nothing to do with climate change. It is not an argument for or against. No scientist says climate change is the only driver of weather. I mean, weather doesn't drive a car at all, so if climate change cancels, weather has to, like, call an Uber or its annoyed friends. In all seriousness, I just talked about El Nino and La Nina, and there are plenty of other drivers as well. This was a temporary temperature swing in 1922 in one specific area of the Arctic called Spitsbergen, which, ew, we should really rename that place to something more interesting like Frigid Shores or Michael. But that temperature swing was very different from seeing record heat waves all over the world every single year. And again, no one in 1922 was suggesting that coastal cities were on the verge of being uninhabitable. This was really just a story on a particular local weather event, and while it is interesting, it's kind of irrelevant for our purposes. Alright, on to the national emergency talk. At the time that I'm writing, the Biden administration is contemplating the idea of declaring a national climate emergency, which would unlock certain executive powers. Knowing my luck, they'll make the decision Tuesday afternoon, and this will be outdated the second this episode drops. In fact, I bet the conversation going on in the Oval Office right now is, folks, we have to announce this national climate emergency right before Tip of the Iceberg Episode 24 comes out on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. But assuming there isn't new news, I wanted to address a myth I saw going around social media and some op-eds that a national climate emergency would lead to a climate change lockdown. And good lord, I hope not. Look, I'll admit that I'm not an expert in what specific powers the president does and doesn't have. In fact, I'm not good at remembering specific powers across the board. Ask me what Green Lantern's powers are, and I'll just nod at you like a bobblehead. However, I do know that anything the president does has to be done under a law passed by Congress, and the courts can knock down any executive action that doesn't fit that criteria. So even if there was a law that the president identified as giving permission to enforce such a climate lockdown, you can bet every entity in the country would start suing and a court would jump in faster than Green Lantern can run. If he can run fast. Again, I don't know anything about the guy. But think about a climate change lockdown from a political standpoint for a second. I don't think many people in the country would support that, and probably would go so far as to vote someone out because of it. And remember, any executive action can be repealed by the next president, so a ridiculously unpopular executive action probably isn't going to be a long-term solution to anything. You might be wondering, but Ethan, what about climate change? Don't we need something that drastic? And I'm still wondering, wait, who even is Green Lantern? 
But if we look at the 2020 lockdowns, at the height of COVID-19 in April, daily global carbon emissions dropped by 17%. That means 83% of emissions were still there when people were locked down. It doesn't matter that people aren't driving to work if you're still ordering books on how to make sourdough from Amazon every day. Yes, it's a dent, but there are much more impactful and exciting ways to cut carbon emissions, looking at energy efficiency, clean energy, changes in transportation and agriculture, the list goes on. And we don't have to go through all of that right now. But my point is that a climate lockdown is simply illogical from a climate perspective, a political perspective, and I don't even know that it's legal. So I hope that's enough to ease your mind if you were worried about a climate lockdown. So those are maybe the easier myths to bust. But the one I saw on my feed the most last week was a story in a Scottish tabloid called the Sunday Post with the headline... Our bloody empty oceans. Scott's team's research finds Atlantic plankton all but blindly wiped out in catastrophic loss of blooming life. Well, it reads almost like that. I added a few adjectives for fun. The story claimed this team called the Global Oceanic Environmental Survey Foundation found by collecting water samples from the Atlantic that 90% of the ocean's plankton is now gone. This led to a frenzy of social media posts sharing the story and using it to drive a whole bunch of climate doom. Fortunately, this research is extremely flawed, not peer-reviewed, and according to other scientists, pretty conclusively not accurate. First off, Plankton are arguably one of the most important organisms on the planet, so we would have noticed in a big way by now if 90% of them were gone. Plus, they wouldn't leave without saying goodbye, right? Right, Lisa? But aside from that, the actual report is titled, Climate Change, Have We Got It All Wrong? I assume to get it published in Scotland, they'll have to revise it to... Have we got climate change all wrong and all that in it? But regardless of the title, the report suggests that it is chemical pollution, not changes in climate, driving this 90% loss in plankton. It's only a six-page report, they don't include much on how they got these numbers, and the best clue we have is elsewhere on the website where they feature a citizen science project that asks yacht owners to collect water samples from the Atlantic Ocean by their own microscopes and count the plankton. If that's how they got their data, then boy do I have a lot of questions to ask. There's a lot of things I expect from yacht owners. Fancy IPAs, summer homes in the Hamptons, tax fraud, but reliable scientific data is not one of them. I didn't even know they had yachts in Scotland. Maybe they should call it Yachtland. If we look to other scientific research that actually has been peer-reviewed, though, we see that plankton losses are nowhere near this bad especially in areas where the chum bucket still gets business. 
Apparently, now we make niche SpongeBob references for the one 12-year-old who listens. We have seen some specific instances, such as a particular zooplankton species in the North Sea declining by 70%, and broader trends such as plankton migrating northward. But there is no other science backing up a claim that 90% of all plankton, which includes a long list of tens of thousands of species, some of which humans have yet to even identify, are gone. And from the entire Atlantic Ocean, no less. So we can consider this myth busted. One more funny note. The face of the Global Oceanic Environmental Survey Foundation is a marine biologist named Dr. Howard Dryden. And in addition to working on this entity, Dr. Dryden is responsible for several products related to water filtration. So do with that as you will. Certainly a little sus to post a report saying chemical pollution is the problem and not climate change when you're in the water filtration game. Joke's on him though, the sweaty penguin is releasing our filter brands later this month as competition. People are going to go bananas when they hear about the sweaty bottle, patent pending. This plankton story in particular though, was spread by a lot of climate communicators on social media as real science. And furthermore, they discussed the 90% statistic as a climate issue. So not only were they sharing an inaccurate report, but they clearly didn't even read said inaccurate report. And a lot of people were arguing that any story that can get people riled up about climate change is worth spreading, even if it's untrue, because it would work to serve the greater good or something. And that's where I get really frustrated. There is no reason ever to spread misinformation, even if your ex really deserves it. The facts of climate change are concerning enough on their own. If you present those well, your audience will share your concerns. Whereas if you spread misinformation and get called on it, all you do is lose your audience's trust. And not just that, but people start to distrust every climate communicator on everything we say. You know, or at least I hope you do, that I always lead with facts. Every single episode of this podcast gets fact-checked by one of our team members. And if we do make a mistake, I make sure to let all of you know. And then I make sure to tell you what team member made the mistake so that we can all collectively call them out on it in a respectful and productive way, such as tweeting that they're a silly billy or sending a SWAT team to their posted address. So you can understand why I find it really, really frustrating that there are folks out there spreading misinformation in the name of climate change and thinking that's them doing good. It isn't. And it actually makes my job and the job of several other climate communicators who do care about the facts a lot harder. For any of you, though, whether it's misinformation in the doom world or the denial world, be sure not to share stuff without actually confirming it's correct. There's a lot more of these inaccurate claims out there in the climate space than you might expect. Even if it's not a pants-on-fire lie, there may be imprecise language that makes a claim misleading. 
If you have questions about something you see on social media, you can always send them in here and I'll take a look for you and give an answer on Tip of the Iceberg. In fact, I encourage you to do that. That sounds fun. But at the very least, give it a Google. Try to find a scientist's opinion. Use Bing for all I care, whatever you have to do. It's really important to maintain the integrity here and stick to the science. There is no such thing as spreading misinformation for the greater good. After all, isn't that the message we all took away from the Green Lantern movie? I don't know, I didn't see it, but it sounds if the movie is truly about an eco-conscious superhero that lights up abandoned parking lots for campers, then that would be a natural ending. Have you ever wished there was something that would combine your historical fascination with battle armor and your love of animals? Then armadillos are for you. Armadillos are also known as silly soldier squirrels, furry fighter friends, or in Spanish, little armored ones. But climate change is forcing armadillos north, so order now before they all end up in Canada and we can't find them. Armadillos, the perfect blend of wartime armor and cute tiny mammal, but can neither serve as a tool in actual war, nor as a domestic pet. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to Tip of the Iceberg. It's time for Ask Me Anything, where our listeners get a chance to ask me any environmental questions they may have. Submit questions on our Patreon, email, or social media. Questions from patrons go to the front of the line, so be sure to sign up today at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Today's Ask Me Anything comes from one of our patrons and my grandmother. So, in our West Virginia VEPA episode, I had said that the case reinforced the notion that while the EPA has some power, it is ultimately the responsibility of Congress, the legislative branch, to make the laws. It's their job, not the EPA's, not the Supreme Court, not anyone else. So in response to that, Laura Harris asks, So what if Congress ignores climate change and does nothing to make cleaner air? Do we just have to sit by and take it? This is a great question. Thank you so much for it. So I have to, again, backdrop all of this by reiterating the point that Congress makes the laws. That's in the Constitution. There's not much getting around that. But if you're looking at it from the perspective of the executive branch, which is led by the president and is in charge of enforcing the laws, then you can look back in history and say, whoa, Congress has passed 30,000 some odd laws since 1789. Do any of these give us the power, or rather the mandate, to take climate action? And many would suggest that there are such laws already on the books. So the Center for Biological Diversity put out a press release on July 15th where they advocated for some such actions. 
I am not personally advocating for any of these. To be honest, I see pros and cons to all of them. But let's run down their list, just so you have some concrete examples of what I'm talking about here. Starting with our good friend, the Clean Air Act of 1963. The Clean Air Act was the law in question in the West Virginia VEPA Supreme Court case. But there is more to the law than what was discussed in that case. For example, in the law... Congress gave the EPA the authority to set a nationwide limit for the concentration of an air pollutant. Carbon dioxide is considered a pollutant under the Clean Air Act, so in theory, the EPA could set a national limit for carbon dioxide. Same goes for methane and a few other greenhouse gases. Another option being discussed, as I mentioned earlier, is the National Emergencies Act of 1976. In this law, Congress gives the president special powers during a national emergency and procedures on how the president may execute them. Now, the National Emergencies Act doesn't list all the actions the president can take themselves. Rather, there are 136 other laws on the books which say something along the lines of, in a national emergency, the president can do X, Y, Z. So the National Emergencies Act is coupled up with other laws that contain these provisions. In the Center for Biological Diversity's press release, they suggest that coupling up with the Energy Policy Conservation Act of 1975 would allow the president to ban exports of crude oil, They suggest that coupling up with the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act of 1953 would allow the president to suspend the operations of all offshore oil and gas drilling leases. And they suggest that coupling up with the International Emergency Economic Powers Act of 1977 would allow the president to restrict international trade and private investment in fossil fuels. Another possibility, which is one we've discussed a little bit on the podcast before, is called the Defense Production Act of 1950. In this law, Congress gives the president the power to expedite and expand the supply of minerals and services from U.S. industry if it's necessary for national security. We've talked before about how climate change threatens national security. With that logic, the president could conceivably marshal domestic industries to manufacture renewable energy and clean transportation technologies. And there are other options, too. The Center for Biological Diversity mentions the Clean Water Act, the Rivers and Harbors Act, the Mineral Leasing Act, the Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act, all these different options. But you get the picture. From the perspective of the president, the EPA, and the executive branch of government, no, they don't have to sit by and take it. But here's where things get dicey. First off, if one president decides to take one of these actions, the next president can undo it immediately. 
A lot of these actions would require decades to play out, and if we look back historically, single parties never held on to power for that long. Second, I'm just guessing here, but I would think any of these actions would go straight to a court, and courts are able to block an action from taking effect while they analyze the case. If the court did that and then later ruled against the president's action, that would not just mean the action didn't happen, but it would set a new court precedent that could affect future decision-making. And third, and maybe most importantly, think about these options I was listing off. You're free to love them or hate them, but I think we can agree that those are heavy regulations. They would be controversial. They may alienate some people who would otherwise be supporters of climate action. And not all, but some of these would likely take a toll on the economy. And that's ultimately what makes the prospect of Congress doing their jobs a lot more intriguing to me. First off, being a place where there's members of both parties, there's a lot more opportunity to find common ground, explore nuance, create laws that give these agencies way more specific instructions related to climate change, or don't even focus on agencies much at all. There are deregulations that could help the climate. There's so much on the table. And I know many people have seemingly given up on this idea of the two parties working together, but it does still happen. Look at last year's infrastructure bill. Look at the Great American Outdoors Act from 2020. It's totally possible. In fact, in May, Pew Research Center asked Americans about five specific climate policy issues, and two generated support from a majority of both Democrats and Republicans, a proposal to plant trees to absorb carbon emissions, and a proposal to provide tax credits to businesses that are developing methods to store or capture carbon emissions. Now, we did an episode on carbon capture if you want to check that out. That's a really nuanced thing. But Congress could do that. If everyone agrees on that point, then pass that and then keep working. Those two things won't solve everything or even come close, but it's better than nothing. There's not the level of climate denial in government that there was five or ten years ago. It's hard to deny what's happening right now, and states with senators and representatives from both parties are feeling the effects of climate change. So as challenging as it is, there is common ground to be had. There's an opportunity to make really specific, nuanced, helpful, exciting policy. And again, it is Congress's job. That's why we elect them and pay them from our tax dollars to do it. And I see no reason why that bar should be lowered. If I can make one more point, though. The question was, do we have to sit by and take it? And we are not the executive branch of the federal government. What we as non-politicians can do is take action in our own lives. We can listen to this podcast and learn all you can from others about climate change. We can vote. We can call representatives. Remember, your elective representative in Congress is a lot more likely to get your message and take it into consideration than the president. I always encourage people to talk to someone they disagree with. It's not the easiest thing in the world, but finding common ground is ultimately really important to creating lasting and effective change. These are all options, but however you want to exercise it, 
everyone does have some power here. Not long ago, I was a hopeless teenager terrified for my future. Now I have a podcast on PBS.org that I hope is actually making an impact. Be it climate or anything else we care about. Even if things look bleak at a certain moment, I don't believe in sitting by and giving up. There's always something positive we can do. Thanks so much for the question, really important one. And thanks to all of you who listened to Tip of the Iceberg. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and review or joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and your questions move to the front of the line for Tip of the Iceberg. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you on Friday for a deep dive on skiing. <laughs>